This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. Well, good morning. Welcome. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If uh, this is one of your first Sundays, welcome. Uh, Glad to meet you. Um, Go ahead and grab a seat if you haven't already and take out your Bibles and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the book 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be looking at chapter 15. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first 34 verses of chapter 15. And if you don't uh, have a Bible, there's a, a Bible under the seat or in the seat in front of you. And it's on page 559. And you, you're free to take that Bible with you. It's just a gift from us to you if you don't own a Bible. You know, one of my favorite holidays is Easter. I don't know if that's true for you, but it is like my favorite holiday. And uh, for a few Sundays before Easter and after Easter, I'm on an Easter high, and there seems to be generally an increase of joy and peace uh, in my heart around uh, Easter time because of the subject of Easter. And, uh, and then it kind of wanes, and then I kind of get revved up again uh, for uh, the next year, for Easter of next year. And uh, one of the things that's really exciting when you get into uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul is that it seems to be true for him that Easter never wanes. It never diminishes. His excitement about Easter just keeps going and actually accelerates uh, as he continues to live his life. The realities of resurrection seems to be a vital aspect of the gospel that he's relishing in day in and day out. And we've been in a series in 1 Corinthians, and we've seen him uh, get really knee-deep into some very controversial topics. And as he's closing out this book, he actually helps the Corinthian church, and God's helping us to, to take our eyes up and look up and beyond and out at what joy is offered to us in the resurrection. Now, if there's anything I know about all of us, is that we would like to probably experience more joy in our lives. I don't know everything about everybody that's going on uh, here today, but I do know that you would like to experience more joy, and you're in for a treat because the resurrection is a a sure uh, line to joy Uh, in our lives. It's a real spiritual joy. So here's how we're going to look at the the first 34 verses. We're going to talk about what's happened through the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's going to talk in length about what's happened, what has historically happened in the resurrection of Jesus. And then he's going to switch gears in verse 12 through 28, and he's going to look at the future. What is going to happen through the resurrection of Jesus? And then he gives some comments about what that means for right now, for today. So that's going to be our outline for this morning. What's happened through the resurrection of Jesus? What will happen through the resurrection of Jesus? And what does that mean for today? What are the implications for right now? So let's pray and then we'll get started here. Lord, we humble our hearts right now before you. And we ask that you would open up our eyes and our ears to see what we can't see apart from your grace. So Holy Spirit, come and have your way in us. Help us to experience the resurrection on the inside of our hearts. Give us renewal and give us joy as we look at who you are for us in Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to look at the first 11 verses and ask the question, what's happened 
through the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, starting in verse 1, he says, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you Believe. So there's a big reminder in verse 1 of the gospel, and he calls everybody who is listening brothers, and that's inclusive of sisters as well. Brothers and sisters, listen in. I'm reminding you of the gospel facts. These are things that have happened. Now, a simple definition of the gospel is everything God does to bring sinners to himself through the person and work of Jesus. Everything God does. So sometimes we latch on to simple definitions, but the gospel is vast and expansive because Jesus is vast and expansive and he is eternal and he is amazing. And so it's, in, it's impossible to truncate a, 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 a simple, simplistic definition when we talk about the gospel. It's, it's better to say, here's a simple definition that includes a very, really broad thing, and that's everything God does to bring sinners to himself in a relationship through Jesus. Now, the power of the gospel story is in its ability to be based on fact and not fiction. For this to have power, it has to be rooted in truth and not myth. If it's rooted in truth, it has power. If it's rooted in myth, if it's simply a story, it does not have power. It might be a nice story. It might be an entertaining story, but it does not have power. And what Paul is reminding them of are the facts. Here are the facts. Separate your feelings for just a moment about how you feel today. And let's meditate on the facts. Because right feeling always flows from right thinking on things that are true or not true. Well, here's what he says is true. Jesus died as a willing substitute. Notice for our sins. He was a sacrificial substitute. He was a stand-in in the place of sinners. He did not die for his sins. He died for other people's sins. That's in verse 3. In verse 4, he says, Jesus, having died, was buried in a tomb under the direction of the most powerful government in the world. Many Many people saw him die 
and many people saw him buried. And then in verse 4, he says, Jesus raised from the dead on the third day, Easter Sunday, notice, in accordance with Scripture. He died in accordance with Scripture. He was raised in accordance with Scripture, according to the promises that he had promised multiple times to his disciples that this very thing was going to happen. It shouldn't have been a surprise because he told them again and again and even illustrated it multiple ways that I'm going to die and on the third day I'm going to rise. And then in verse 5 through 8, Jesus goes on an appearance campaign. Literally, it's a campaign. For 40 days after he's resurrected, he starts appearing to people. It wasn't one or two people in a closed group. It was multiple, multiple people. Notice verse 5, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. You, you remember that in the gospel stories. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And he says, most of whom are still alive. Go ask one of These 500 people that he appeared to at one time, because most are still living and can verify this historic fact. He says, though some have fallen asleep, that's his language for they've died, because death is temporary, that we're going to see that in this passage today. Though some have died, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Then, last of all, as to one untimely born He appeared also to me. So we're reminded that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people over 40 days after his resurrection, many of whom you go have an interview with, you go grab a cup of coffee with, he reminds them of, and they'll tell you exactly who they saw. And without any hesitation, Jesus is resurrected. Now, when Paul is talking about the resurrection— And he's talking about the historic facts of what Jesus has done in history. He's also not ashamed to include himself in the story. Now, he plays a unique role in salvation history. He is an apostle. He does see and have communication with the resurrected Lord. He is commissioned to write scripture, and that is a very unique role that he has. Nevertheless, he personalizes the gospel message in a very individual way that is very helpful. Notice in verse 9, he says this, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul says, let me tell you a little bit about my past. I was the absolute least candidate to receive any grace from God, let alone be a messenger to the Gentiles as an apostle. Let me tell you what I did. I separated families. I had people put to death. I have that on my conscience. I remember where I came from. But notice verse 10. That doesn't define him, but... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's talking about the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So it's important that they have 
believed in the resurrection because he's about to address a problem that they're having in the Corinthian church as he's been addressing multiple problems that the Corinthian church has been having. But they have believed in the resurrection of Jesus, and he's reminding them of what Jesus has done, and then he concludes himself in a very personal way. Now, when you read the Apostle Paul, both, both in this book and in multiple places, in Acts and in his letters, he rarely shares the gospel without rehearsing how Jesus saved him personally. Sometimes he'll go into great detail and great length, depending on the audience, and sometimes he'll shorten his story. But he's not afraid to go into his story. He's not afraid to share the details of his story. He says things like, I was far from God. Jesus took me right where I was, and he changed me from the inside. And now he's giving me grace on a daily basis. He'll say later, I die every day. I put my sin to death, and I focus on eternity, and I die daily because his grace is giving me help to change every single day. He's never left me. He's never forsaken me. He's never going to leave me. And that's his story. And he continues to share his story. So he's not ashamed to acknowledge his past sins and failures. He's not proud of his past, but he's not ashamed to acknowledge his past. He's not ashamed of his unique calling. He has a very unique calling, and he has some very unique opportunities in front of him. Some unique doors open up to him that don't open up to other people, other apostles. And he doesn't dismiss that. He doesn't minimize that. He doesn't sweep that away. He embraces his unique calling. And then over and over again, he's not ashamed to personalize the gospel story. It's not just that Jesus died generally for sinners in a general way. He'll say to the Galatian church, Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. He, so he personalizes this truth of what Jesus has done for sinners in the most intimate way that you can. That's how he believes Jesus died. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for Paul. He died for me. When he gave himself up in the hands of a crooked court, he gave himself up for me. Now, I've been a Christian for a lot of years, and I know this is true of myself, and, and as I've interacted with a number of believers, I know this to be true, that everyone who is a Christian has a story. It's your story. It's your unique story of how you came to believe in Jesus. If you've never come to believe in Jesus, but your faith in Jesus, you don't have a story. Well, you do, but it's, it's at this part of the story, and there's a whole lot more story waiting for you when you put your faith in Jesus. But nobody becomes a Christian apart from having a unique story. But not everybody loves their story. Uh, many people struggle with their testimony. They think, I oh, mean, I wish I had a more dramatic testimony of how I came to faith in Jesus, or I wish I had a less dramatic testimony of how I came to faith in Jesus. I wish I had her story. I wish that was kind of, when I related how I came to Christ, I wish that, wish that was me. 
Or I wish I hadn't gone through all that I went through before I came to Christ. I feel like I wasted a lot of years, wasted a lot of time and opportunities, and this is my story, and it's not as good as somebody else's. Or there's a temptation to sort of minimize the gifts and the opportunities that God's given to you. I wish God gave me different gifts. I wish that when he called me, I was, you know, I had these opportunities in front of me and not these opportunities. And I wish I had another person's gifts. But every testimony is very unique and every story is the same in this. The hero is always Jesus. Jesus called you personally, and drew you to himself in a very unique, in a very personal way. So that everybody here today, regardless of when you came to faith in Jesus, can say along with the apostle in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I'm not going to minimize or dismiss or sweep away my story. His grace towards me is not in vain. There are opportunities in front of me that I can take hold of to demonstrate and declare the gospel, and his grace is for me to do it. Well, that's some of the gospel facts. And now he switches gears in verse 12 to talk about what's going to happen. Let's talk about the future. What will happen through the resurrection of Jesus? Well, he says in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So here's, here's the issue. The Corinthian church, they just got themselves in all kinds of problems because they made all these presumptuous statements and assumptions about the way they thought um, God felt about certain spiritual gifts. And in this case, they separated the resurrection of Jesus from the idea that humans were resurrected. People who had died and gone on to be with the Lord, uh, they stayed spiritual, and there wasn't a future physical form of them in a future resurrected way. And so they said, there is no resurrection. That, that seemed below them. They, they thought, you know, the world is earthly and unspiritual and just really not good. And so when we think about resurrection, it's fine to think about Jesus being resurrected, but not necessarily about people being resurrected. And that's the issue that Paul uh, takes aim at in this section here. And he goes after it really, really hard. So in verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He, he says, listen, if you're, if you're going to separate the idea that people are resurrected, then you are in danger of losing the fact that Christ has been raised. In verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That means it's empty and meaningless. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished 
And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the Corinthians believed Jesus rose from the dead, but they weren't sure that believers were. And four times right here, Paul is insisting that if you deny resurrection for believers, you are denying the very resurrection of Jesus. And the whole gospel comes down. It's not just a a simple brick in the wall that if you remove this brick, the wall stays up. You take this brick out that you and I will be resurrected with Jesus in a resurrected form. You lose the entire gospel is what he's saying. It's that serious. And he says, uh, you know, forget this idea that to follow Jesus doesn't cost us anything. To believe in the resurrection doesn't cost us anything. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. I can remember when I was in college, it was popular to tell somebody, you know, if I'm wrong, I lose nothing. But if you're wrong, you lose everything. Maybe you've said something like that. There's truth to that in terms of believing in Jesus. So, you know, I would, I would tell somebody, well, you know, I, I don't lose anything if I'm wrong. But if you, you're wrong, you lose eternity and et cetera. And that all comes from, from a guy named Pascal and his, his wager. He's a 14th century philosopher. And he said, if you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. And that's actually, there's some truth to that, but it doesn't tell the whole story because Paul would take uh, argument with the fact that you, the whole idea that you lose nothing if you believe in Jesus. That's not what he says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, he says. He says, if in Christ we hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied in this world. He'll say later in this section that you might as well take up the philosophy that some of the Corinthians had. That just let us eat and let us drink and let us be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. So he says, listen, if Jesus is not raised, everyone you love who has died and is gone is gone forever. And the only thing you have of them is a memory and a body that will soon fade away. You and I will become nothing very soon. And so what in the world are we doing even spending time talking about this? We are fools. We are the worst of fools if in this life only we are hoping. And if Christ is not raised, then we're wasting our time. And we've been wasting our time, by the way. Well, in verse 20, he, he insists that that's actually not the case, obviously. But in fact, none of that's true because Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Christ brings this resurrection to all people and all things. And this is, in fact, a true reality. That's why he's saying this has happened. Everybody knows that this has happened. Christ has historically raised from the dead, and he's started something that is going to come to all people who believe in Jesus. Now notice, everything gets reversed. Everything is made new. Verse 23, Paul says, "...but each in his own order." How is Jesus making everything alive? How will he make everything new? Well, here's how. Christ, the first fruits. 
Now, the first fruits is like the first sample of the crop, and it shows the quality of everything that's being harvested. So that's, that's that idea. So you would show somebody, here's the first fruits, and it's not different than what everything that's coming behind me. It's the sample. It's, it's, here, here it is. When you go to Costco, they're going to give you multiple samples, and they're not tricking you. You buy this, everything that's over here is right here. And so some, something of the same idea here. Christ is the first fruits. The quality of his resurrection is going to be what everything else that follows his resurrection, about what he's going to be talking about. This is the first sample, and it shows what everything else is that's coming behind. Verse 23, here's what's coming behind. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, those who have united themselves to Christ by faith, when they come, receive When he comes, receive resurrection bodies like his. Resurrected bodies are spiritually with Jesus, but they will receive resurrected bodies that will not experience sickness or illness or death ever. Because they have a body of the same quality like Jesus. In verse 24, 25, he says this, Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So we're seeing multiple endings here. And, and one of the endings that we're getting a preview of is that Jesus is going to put all of his enemies under his feet. Who are his enemies? Everybody, every rule and every authority and every power that resists his supremacy. Every rule and every sickness and every disease and every power, spiritual or earthly, that resists his rule will find their ultimate end being crushed under his feet, which is a picture of total domination and authority. In fact, in Revelation, we get this picture. When John looks out into the future, he sees that the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? These are unbelievers. These are people who have resisted God's grace and have positioned themselves against the Lamb of God. And for believers who, just like we sung earlier, can't wait to see the beautiful face of their Savior, to these people it is a terrifying sight as they see his rule come into play in the world and they have resisted and they continue to resist and they will find themselves under his feet and under his authority. And then notice it says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, death itself. So having conquered the cause of death, which is sin, now Jesus is conquering death itself. He's taking on that, that enemy and everything that 
causes death. Every form of sickness, every form of disease, every instance of hunger in the world, every form of evil, earthly or spiritual, every kind of injustice, everything that leads to death, Jesus is putting under his feet. He's going to subject it to his sovereign and holy and good rule. And then in verse 27, it says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So so Jesus is going to rule all, he rules all things, but he's going to visibly rule all things. And it says, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him. Who put all things in subjection under him? That God may be all in all. So follow what Paul's saying. The father puts all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. And then the son, one by one, puts every enemy under his feet. One by one by one by one. And then the son puts himself in subjection to his father that God may be all in all. That's what you call a complete reversal of what's unraveled in the fall. One enemy after another, one disease after another, one sickness after another, all coming to an end. One end after another end, after another end, after another end. And we see here, this truly is an epic story that has multiple endings and multiple conclusions. It's not a quick wrap-up. It's not like just everybody's just kind of laughing at the end of the 30-minute sitcom and then it's over and the story's done. Now, there's multiple endings, and we get that anytime that we are engaged with an epic story. Do you guys remember the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Anybody sit through all nine hours of film in one sitting? Any nerds in here? You can, you can admit it. There are nerds in here. P- Lord of the Ring nerds. Well, Peter Jackson got a lot of heat for the last film that he did in that series. I think it's called The Return of the King. Because he devotes, I think, 20 or 30 minutes to multiple endings, multiple fade-outs. So they're all united at the, you know, in the room, and then he fades out, and then there's another reunion, and then he fades out. And then Gandalf, I think it's Gandalf, is like reborn, and then that's a fade-out. And then you've got to see Mordor crumble. I get that right? Mordor crumbles. And then the ring, we got to have conclusion with the ring. And then we got to have, I mean, it's just multiple, in, I mean, it just goes on and on. You're like, oh, you're in tears and that's a great ending. And then you're, oh man, you're in tears again. That's another amazing ending. And you're like, man, how long is this going to go on? This is like, how many endings do we have? And then they're all back at the Shire. They got to bring it all the way back to the Shire. And even that's not done. Then they're talking about the next adventure. It's the start of a whole new story. And here we're seeing Paul saying, listen, we are in the middle because the first ending has already started. Jesus, the first fruits, has been raised. And now we're on the brink of watching multiple things come down. Multiple endings are about to take place. And we're going to get the front row seat at all of this. And we get to participate in the endings as well. There's a verse in Habakkuk that says, For the earth 
will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's a summary of what it means for God to be all in all. It doesn't mean all things become God and God is everything. It just means that his supreme good and beautiful reign will cover the globe. And there will be a day when his beauty covers things in such a way there will not be a single sad thing to see. His beauty is coming. And we're going to get to see it closing by closing and ending by ending. Well, let's, let's close out this, this message this way. Let's, let's look at what does the resurrection mean for today? What's it mean for right now where we are with the challenges that we're facing, with life as we're living, what does the resurrection mean today? And how can we grab hold of, of the joy that I mentioned earlier? Well, I think that this passage is talking about because of the resurrection right now, you and I who are in Christ, if you're in Christ by faith, you live in, hold on to this, total forgiveness. You live in total, I don't mean sort of, I don't mean kind of, I don't mean 75%, I don't mean 98%. I mean complete forgiveness. Notice, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. So, Follow this. If he died for our sins, he died for all of our sins. Not some of our sins. We sang earlier, my sins not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross. And if he died for all of our sins, in accordance with scriptures, he was raised for all of our sins sins. And if he was raised for our sins, that means he has defeated our sins, and that means he's defeated all of our sins. He has accomplished something factual and historic. It's been done. Paul is so certain of this that he says in verse 17, you may have missed this, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The fear that I'm still in my sins is not for the believer who understands that Christ indeed has been raised. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as, as in Adam, verse 22, all die, that's where death came through Adam, so also in Christ shall all be made Alive In Christ, all are made alive. So when Jesus rose from the grave, it signaled a defeat of the sins and the trespasses that he died on the cross for. Now, this is so clear in the New Testament. It comes up again and again. And it, it's a wonder that Easter Sunday is only like one day uh, a year for, for some of us. In Romans 4... Paul says he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification comes via 
the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is raised, now we can be fully and totally declared legally justified because of his resurrection. He'll say in Romans 8, many of you have seen this this passage, who is to condemn? In other words, what court in the universe can signal a condemnation over believers? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. Man, whoa. If I said more than the death, everybody would be, whoa, that's, that's, that's dangerous ground. But Paul says, no, no, no. Jesus died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He points to his resurrected life that now serves as this loving function of intercessory and advocation for sinners. John will say in 1 John, Hey everybody, my little children, he calls them. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Who can condemn somebody who Jesus rose from the dead to justify and legally declare good and righteous? The answer, nobody. No one. That includes Satan. That includes somebody that spoke something over you in your life. That includes yourself. That includes yourself. Consider the implications of what this means for tomorrow. Everybody struggles with sin. Everybody's got one particular sin that, that just seems to be a hang-up for you. In the moment that you sin, whether that's intentionally or unintentionally, whether that's conscious or unconscious, you do something hurtful, you fail to love, so it's sins of omission, commission, you just fail to love somebody like you're supposed to, or you do something intentionally harmful, Listen, before you experience the comforting help of the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, to repent and to change, which you certainly will if you're in Christ, before that happens, you stand completely blameless and forgiven. I'll say that again. Before you experience God's forgiveness through conviction— through change, you stand completely forgiven. Paul is saying, even if you resist God's conviction to the point of receiving his loving discipline, which does happen in, among the Corinthians who continue to resist God's conviction, he still calls them brothers and insists upon their complete forgiveness in Christ. So every sin that in no way pleases the Lord nevertheless has been forgiven before we experience forgiveness through repentance. I know that's, that's a lot to take in. But consider this. How can this be? Forgiveness is not based upon the quality of your faith. How good my faith is. How pure my faith is. It's based upon the acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus demonstrated in the resurrection. That's what verse 17 says. Put your eyes on verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So 
He's saying that's not happened, so reverse the, reverse, reverse the words there. Christ has been raised. So your faith is not futile, and you're not in your sins. Remember the promise in Isaiah where God speaks to his people and says, Come now, let us settle the matter. The NIV translates it that way. Let's reason together. Let's settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So God signals this is going to happen in the resurrection of Jesus where he justifies people whose sins are like scarlet and he's going to declare them white as snow in his eyes. Let's settle this matter. Forgiveness is completely in Jesus. And faith is the gift that unites us to Jesus. This is what connect, faith connects us to Jesus. But forgiveness is because he was resurrected. There's this old hymn, and it, it was never my favorite because the imagery of it is, is uh, it just takes your imagination, doesn't it? Um, but it, it, I was reminded of this hymn this week that reminded me of this truth. You remember the song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood? There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So it's not the quality of the plunge. It's not the quality of the faith. Faith in God is his plunging us into some reality that we lose all our stains through. In Jesus, we're drenched in his blood, which Leviticus said is so significant because the blood of Jesus is the life of Jesus. We're covered and drenched in the life of Jesus. Life has swallowed up death, and, and you, don't, you don't get dried off from that, ever. You and I are, are covered in life. So let that make you happy. You're freed. Forgiveness has come. Let that inform your conscience. Let that inform what you're struggling with and the the own self-condemnation that can take place. You're forgiven of every sin if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to put your faith, take your faith off of whatever you're resting in and trusting in and put your faith completely in Jesus and you will be washed of all of your sins. Number two, and we're going to close really quick, these last two. Resurrection frees us from passivity. So to be justified and to be declared righteous means now we are free to change. Now we are free to move forward with changing in, change in ourselves and change in this world. Look at verse 9. Paul says again, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. That's my story. That's my past. I've messed up. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm, I'm justified because of what Jesus has done 
on the cross and in the resurrection. And his grace towards me. Not his grace towards me in the past. His grace right now in my life is not in vain. I worked harder than any of them. Listen, he's able to say, I worked so hard. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was enabling me. The grace of God is with me. The resurrection ensures that for anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, he is with them, giving them grace, pouring streams of mercy and grace in their lives on a daily basis. So listen, God's grace is received. That's what he mentioned here. It's received, and the Corinthians received it. And in that way, grace is passive. But this passive grace should never lead to passivity, which is a huge danger. Even the you know, Corinthian church was like, well, th- does this mean that we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Logically, you could go there in your mind, but that's not how grace operates. Grace comes to us and then sets us free to be active in our faith. And for Paul, he's not dismissive of his past. He's not dismissive of his opportunities. He understands that God's grace is towards him, and now he can move and act out love and grace and and take advantage of the gifts and opportunities in our lives. So think about it in your own life. Are you tempted to minimize your story, tempted to dismiss your gifts, tempted to dismiss God's grace in your life of finding you where you were with giving you the gifts that God's given to you and the opportunities that God's given to you? Are you tempted to dismiss that? Are you tempted towards passivity? You know, I'm forgiven of everything, so I should just, you know, put my feet up and not do anything or not really be concerned about resisting and fighting sin in my life. Well, that would be passivity. That's not what Paul's talking about. We're now set free to change and we're set free to activate our faith and to seize the opportunities to love and serve people where and whenever we can. And then lastly, look at this. The resurrection frees us to find our lives by losing our lives. I mean, this is exactly what, what Jesus says. If you find your life, you, you lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you find it. Now, verse 29, Paul says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this isn't the idea of salvation apart from faith in Jesus. This isn't a Mormon idea that salvation is possible for, via baptism or something. This means that people may have been baptized at that time uh, for those who were dying or those who had already died and didn't have the opportunity to be baptized. So he, he says... You know, why, why, it, why do we do that? Why have you done that if you don't believe in the resurrection? Verse 30 says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat drink, and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor. This is, this is true love. I and mean, it's true love for people is when you can say, hey, I love you. Wake up from your drunken stupor. 
as is right. Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. That's a a personal relationship with God based on faith. Some people don't know God. I say this to your shame. So some of the Corinthians were tempted to believe, well, this is all that there is. And they're kind of promoting that idea among the church. And Jesus said the exact opposite. Your life doesn't have to be perfect this side of eternity. You don't have to try to go about finding your life and making your life perfect this, in this life. A better idea would be to lose your life and not try to find everything perfect. We're not trying to find, make heaven here in terms of our comforts and our ease. We're, we're advancing the spread of life and the gospel message and the change that comes through faith in Jesus. And that's what we're to be about. And that's how things are changed. And that's what we're supposed to be giving our time to. Jesus is closing out the story of death and he's starting a new story of life. And he's inviting us in to participate right where we are, right as we are. And we're supposed to grab hold of every bit of that. Not let fear hold us back. Not be afraid to step out in faith if God's calling us to do something very specific. Not to hesitate from having a conversation with somebody that we need to go have that conversation with. We're free to to step out and to believe God and to embrace the opportunities that he's given to us. Let's let's all stand and we're going to close. We'll close with prayer and then we'll, we'll, we'll sing together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.